Welcome to Real Estate Real World, where we talk to the movers, shakers, and leaders that are getting it done right now in the real estate industry and beyond. Your host is Marguerite Crispillo, and she started this podcast simply to talk to cool people about what's really happening in this crazy roller coaster ride of real estate. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and stay up to date on the newest stuff by adding yourself to the list at www.realestaterealworld.com. Now your host, Marguerite Crispillo. Hello, everybody. It's Marguerite Crispillo, and welcome to another fabulous edition of Real Estate Real World. Today, I have a very special guest, Tyler Sheff. Did I say it right, Tyler? You did. Very good. Yay. He is the founder of CashflowGuys.com. They also have a fantastic podcast. So go over there and subscribe and check out his podcast. But Tyler is the founder of CashflowGuys.com. He's a licensed real estate problem solver. I love that. Educator, investor, and syndicator. Tyler's been involved in real estate for over 16 years and now maintains 100% focus on investing for cash flow and helping others do the same. As a master facilitator of Robert Kiyosaki's Cash Flow 101 game, fantastic game, I played that with my kids, Tyler hosts workshops to teach the busy people how to use what they have to obtain what they need in order to build passive income and escape the rat race. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So I know we connected somewhere how on Facebook, which seems to be where everybody connects, but uh, I was excited to talk to you a little bit because I remember so much playing this game, especially when it first came out and all the books and reading all that information. And then I have teenage boys. Well, they're grown boys now, but I have teenage boys. And so I used to play with them and they w- they didn't like to play with me because they said I cheated. I said, I don't cheat. I know real estate. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to always play Monopoly with them, and I thought, well, these are great games to really, I mean, as as a whole, they're great for everybody, but it's fantastic stuff to teach your kids. It certainly is. Um, I wish I could convince my, t- my teenage daughters to sit down long enough, put down the cell phone, and actually play these games. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, tell me a little bit about you and your background. Like, how did you, tell me what you've been doing, and how did you get into this? I was literally raised in real estate. My mother was a broker of the 70s, uh, the old Century 21 gold coat meant oh, yeah. era, so to speak, back when uh, realtors, being a realtor was a badge of honor. Yeah. And uh, I remember growing up as a kid, I remember back when uh, interest rates were 18 19% and everything was done seller financing or cash. I remember that yeah, too. I wasn't in real estate yet then, but I do remember that happening. When I got into real estate, interest rates had dropped to an all-time low of 10%, wow. right? And we were so happy to get it then. <laughs> what, a, what a discount. <laughs> and now people are complaining when they're like, well, but it's three and seven eighths. And you're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Maybe I should wait two weeks before we close. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Isn't that funny? I get a lot of that with investors. They, they are, they're, they'll, They'll break it down by, you know, a quarter, eighth, a tenth of a percent. I'm going, okay, guys, you know, let's say anyone tries that over 30 years, and you're not paying right. the mortgage anyway the tenant is. So, <laughs> Yeah, let's look at the bigger picture, huh? That's right. That's absolutely right. So you were doing real estate, or you learned a bit from your folks, your mom, you said, and then how did you get into the investor side? Like, how did you end up doing what you're doing now? Yeah, well, about 16 years ago, I 
before the Home and Garden Television and all those shows, the fix and flip and flip and flop mm-hmm. and all that, I thought it would be cool to buy properties and flip them. So that's what I did. I got a couple partners, and we started flipping properties here and there, and it got into the hundreds of properties after a while. It got kind of We got kind of carried away. Um, switched partners a few times, and um, we were doing the, the rehab and then go ahead and resell them and, and whatnot. And that did well. The problem was we I had, uh, had a couple of partnerships that didn't quite work out, so I ended those and then did it on my own for quite a while. And uh, with rehabbing, I was young at the time, and I didn't really pay attention to the tax implications of, of uh, capital gains uh, for real yeah. estate. Yeah. And I was lacking in the ability to mitigate those gains. So needless to say, I made a very large donation to the federal government. <laughs> Couple times. Uh, it, fe- it feels better when you say it that way. Yeah, it does. Right? It, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> I don't cry anymore when I say that, which is good. <laughs> I used to cry and blubber a little bit, but, you know, it is what it is. But, yeah, and I, uh, I found uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad's book online because I was looking for a way to reduce. And at that time, I had left real estate after the market crashed, went to work for the federal government at sea on a ship. And I was making a great income. I was a six-figure income earner. The problem is I started making those large donations again to the IRS. Oh, yeah. And I needed a way to legally, stress the word legally, reduce those tax obligations. And I started, I got the Rich Dad Poor Dad book, and that Rich Dad Poor Dad changed my life. It, it's complete. <laughs> I actually quit the government after five years, walked away from a six-figure job and great benefits and a retirement plan and the whole nine yards to go back into real estate full-time. And now I've essentially eliminated the majority of my tax liability legally. Wow, that's fantastic. It is. You know, I love how he does actually talk about, you know, he. well, I'll let you explain those, like those four quadrants that he talks about, right? The, uh, now I'm going to lose my train of thought, okay, but the, he, he breaks it. There you go. Go ahead. I'll let you explain it. Well, Kiyosaki talks about, the, it's called the cash flow quadrant, which is actually the title of his second book. And, he covers the four different quadrants. So if you look at a square and you've got four different sections in there, the, the top left is the employee quadrant. And then below that, you've got your self-employed person, which are most of your real estate agents. Yeah. And then, or in some cases today, there's, some of them are in the E quadrant. I think Redfin and a few of them are considered employees. But, and then over on the right, you've got the B quadrant, which in the real estate world would be the broker that owns the office and, and gets a piece of uh, what the agents are doing underneath. And then the very bottom quadrant is the I, which stands for investor quadrant. And that's the one that I'm exponentially heading towards because what I've learned to be in that section is you're really letting your money work for you instead of you working for it. Which is truly the ultimate goal. It's just so many people struggle with that. Like we talked a little bit before we started recording today and, you know, many people, I mean, that book has been a number one seller for I don't even know how many years. But how many people actually put it into action is a whole different ballgame. And I, I think I know for um, – well, I heard a great quote one time that said, for real estate agents primarily, it's not, um, what, it's not the commissions that you make. It's what you do with the commissions. That's absolutely – And so many agents are currently in the same boat that you were talking about where they're um, – well, they're supposed to be making donations to the IRS, but frankly, they're not, right? <laughs> that doesn't work out well. No, it doesn't. And I was reading some report that talked about how the real estate industry as a whole is the, the, 
primary industry that is actually being looked at to be converted to W-2 because so many agents are behind in their taxes. And real estate agents, you always hear them say, oh, I didn't have to pay any taxes because I had a great CPA or a great accountant. And you're like, so, you know, I, I didn't have to pay it. And I'm like, you realize that if you wrote it off, you spent it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a big, uh, big issue, right? Exactly. So, do, is that, do you see a lot of that? I mean, obviously, you see the real estate industry as a whole. And what are your thoughts and opinions on, on the mistakes they're making? Well, you're absolutely right when you say they, they – I, I, I've learned recently they have these – now they have these factoring companies that they'll, they'll advance you your real estate commission before a property. Oh, I know. But, oh, my goodness. What are we doing? Why are we doing uh. Are we that bad off? So the rich dad philosophy is he talks about using, you know, putting your money, paying yourself first and putting your money to work. So we decided that this doesn't only apply to real estate agents and brokers and whatnot. It applies to everybody in America. We live in a society where if we can finance it, we'll figure out a way to, we'll buy it. Yeah, Somebody will, some credit card company will loan us the money or the bank will give us the money. And that's really a part of the big reason how I believe the housing market crashed is greed. Yeah. People were taking mortgages on houses more than they could afford. The appraisers were over-appraising them. The banks were lending. Forget about income guidelines. And it's a little scary. We're seeing, I'm seeing that at least in my market down here in Tampa Bay. We're, we're, we're right back there again. Well, I know here we're seeing prices are back to where they were in 2005. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's nerve-wracking a little bit because I've been in real estate 23 years, so I've seen this a couple times now, you know, I, I, that it makes, starts to make me nervous. I noticed, so, that, you know, the real estate agents, you know, you sell a, a decent-sized house and you make, a, let's say, a $10,000 commission, and mo- a lot of agents will then pay off everything that they've – they'll rush and, and pay off all their credit cards or, or worse, they'll go out and spend three-quarters of it and then try to live off the – the other 25% until the next closing, you get they're spending, you know, I have no agents that spend $10,000 a month on Zillow just getting leads. Isn't that crazy? It is. It has, it's, it's absolutely crazy, but, it, it, you know, it is what it is. However, if you take a, a portion of that commission, set it aside, and then pay yourself first, let's say you go out and, oh, I don't know, and I know in California this may sound shocking to listeners, but everywhere else you can still buy a house for fifty to $75,000. And as a real estate agent, you know, you have an access, direct access to the seller. So in a lot of cases, you know, what if you, we teach how you price a house as far as an investor, what you're looking at when you're buying a property for cash flow. The purchase price doesn't really matter so much. It's the terms that matter. In other words, the monthly uh, holding costs, your, your debt service, your property manager, whatnot. So if you sat down with a seller and you didn't collect a real estate commission per se um, for the transaction, and you rolled some of that last commission check into that next property, and you were able to negotiate seller financing terms, and people like you and I that have been in the business a while, we had no choice to have those skills because back in the day, <laughs> getting, yeah. going to the bank and getting a mortgage wasn't an option, so seller financing was the way things were done. And we've started bringing back seller financing as a as a viable tool to, one, help the sellers get more for their property and to get a return on their investment. Two, it helps them mitigate capital gains because when the property is sold with seller financing, they only pay ca- taxes on the money that they receive in that calendar year, which is a power, powerful tool. So for a seller, especially out there in California where you know capital gains can be what most people on the East Coast make, 
uh, that's a great way to offset that is to consider carrying terms. Now, people think, well, I don't want to wait 30 years to collect the proceeds from the sale of my house. Well, you don't have to. That's the beauty. Now, they've, they've put out laws and whatnot to outline how that's done, but primarily if there's a balloon somewhere in the picture and the deal makes sense and everybody's on the up and up of what they're doing, especially with investors, uh, where they're not going to own or occupy the property, setting up those terms, that note, depending on how it's structured, could actually be sold at the closing table. So the seller could still get cash for their property if they absolutely wanted it. Um, However, the owner, the new buyer, gets the seller financing terms. Well, and the truth is, is that what percentage, I mean, the average person does not stay in a home 30 years anyway. I don't think anybody right? does so, anymore, do they? Uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I've been in my house a long time, but uh, not 30 years. But on average, I they say the average person moves every five to seven years. So the truth is, even if it was worst case scenario, it was seven or ten years, it still can be a dramatically better option. And I love that because one of the questions that you had when we were talking first was how to build wealth by finding problems, not properties, and how to be a problem solver. That's what you even say, that you're a master problem solver. And that's how you have to think. You have to think out of the box like that, and very few people do. Yeah, and that's it's a dying art. And I find that I the loyalty that I have with my customer base I don't have to work as hard for my leads because people know me as that problem solver. And they, when they have strange situations, they bring them to me. For example, uh, asset managers, our, our real estate team, the Griffin Group, we do a lot of, of foreclosure properties, HUD, VA, uh, Fannie, Freddie, that type of stuff. Well, those mm-hmm. asset managers, because the agents on our team are expert problem solvers, they bring them to our team leader so she can solve some of those challenging properties that aren't that wouldn't be practical to sell in the open market. For example, they've got title issues, uh, things like that, where we can do maybe even do a workout with a seller to keep them in the home or to get them out of the home and repurpose the property or things like that. Having all those tools in your toolbox is powerful as an agent. And unfortunately, we're not taught that in real estate school. We're basically, at least in Florida, we're taught how to stay out of real estate jail. Yeah. You know, one of my mentors and friends, Marie Forleo, says everything is figure outable. And when you, I did a lot of REO uh, over the last 10 years. I was a Fannie and HUD broker and, and all that um, in 2005 through actually 2015. And I remember one of my asset managers at Fannie Mae said, uh, that he's constantly surprised at the lack of ability by agents to figure the basic stuff out. Yes, absolutely correct. And he he says, I kept thinking that, you know, my time, I would keep, I would find somebody who would just figure stuff out and and take things off my plate. And I was talking to him a couple weeks ago. I haven't, haven't seen him in a while. And we were talking about, you know, Walmart and stuff like that. And the conclusion I came up with is you will get paid in direct proportion to your ability to figure stuff out. You so you can't figure stuff out, you're working at Walmart. <laughs> you know? And with all due respect to the people who work at Walmart, I'm not saying that's everybody, but um it's if you're in an entry level job and you're not going anywhere with that and you're not doing anything, then you need to work on your figure outable skills. Yeah, you gotta step outside the box and look at things differently. One of the most creative things that we do that kind of blows people away is uh, we sell a lot of for sale by owners. The reason we do that is 
we don't charge them any commission. If they don't want to pay a commission, we don't require them to. And it's simple. And so then how does that work? How do you get paid? That's a great question. Most of our buyers are investors. So in that case, the investor is concerned about their monthly holding costs. Now, when I say investor, I mean a buy and hold investor, not a fix and flipper. But a buy and hold investor is concerned about how much does it cost me per month to control this property. And based on that, how much how much rent am I going to receive every month for this property? So simple math, if the property rents for $1,000 a month and the uh, the expenses are half of that, there's about $500 left to play with. So a portion of that needs to go towards debt service. So what we will do in, in cases like this where I have investor buyers that, that buy a lot of property from me, even the one the, the one onesie twosie buyers will go knock on the door of that for sale by owner and let's say they want, I don't know, just throw out a number fifty thousand dollars for their house. We can go in with a contract for fifty thousand dollars. We don't need our commission. What we do is we carry our commission as a second mortgage recorded against the property. And then we make our commission over time instead of lump sum. In other words, I would rather have my commission every month for the next five years than just next Tuesday. You understand? I do. I do. Now, for the, the landlord, that's beautiful because who pays the who really pays the expenses when the when buyer the buyer and and, and yeah, with, for sure. with an investor it trickles down to the tenant. The investor is obviously there to make a profit, so the expenses are paid by the tenant. So our commission as a as a selling agent rolls back to the tenant. And that's our incentive for us is to make sure that we negotiate terms for the buyer that make sense for him, get the acquisition cost where it needs to be, find the adequate terms or financing available. And we work with local lenders to do that. And, of course, we'll negotiate seller financing terms, if applicable, for the, for the buyer and the seller so that we create a true win-win scenario. So you want to talk about solving a problem, there's a great problem to solve. And at the same time, we gave ourselves a pay raise because now we carry our commission as a note against, recorded against the property. So now I have all these little streams of income. Every month I go to the mailbox and I've got 30, 40, 50 checks sitting in there. Smaller checks, well, those add up. I have a, a CFO that just sits there and scans checks every month. It's great. So I have that wow. residual income that just keeps giving. So what comes to mind for me is what happens, I think, with most uh, most real estate agents is they can't wait for their money. They need that money right now, right, which puts them back in that debt situation where they're racking up their credit cards because they can't wait. So they're like, I can't do that because I can't wait, you know, three years for my commission to be paid or whatever that is. You're right. And that's the, the solution for that. And that's where we came up with the cash flow events, the workshops that we do in the area. Now we started doing this for the general public to help them get a handle on their personal finances. We found that there was a, actually a greater need within the realtor, realtor community than there was in the everybody else. And we started taking this to real estate offices and teaching agents how to take better control of their finances. So when they do get that commission check, because obviously this isn't a you snap your fingers and you start doing this tomorrow, based on what you just said, I well I don't ha I, I've got all these bills that they won't wait for three years. I got to pay them now. So we sit down with the agents and use this board game as a means to do it to to educate them on how to take better control of their monthly finances, how to budget, how to take that that Zillow bill or that Realtor.com bill and and factor all this in. Well and also to teach them how to factor the ROI, the return on investment, on what they are spending for their marketing and how to measure that. 
because I believe there's a great number of agents out there that are spending all this money on marketing. That's that's all fine and dandy, but if you don't, if you are, are, are unable to track the return on that investment, well, you're just throwing money out the door. I see that so many times. I mean, I about a year ago, I was talking with one of my um, clients who was looking to do some coaching. And one of the first things he said was that he was spending $10,000 a month on Zillow. And I said, $10,000? He said, yeah. I said, how, how many deals have you done that's a direct result of that? In other words, what is your return on investment? Oh, I don't know. We're burning through all the leads. We can't even, we can't even return all the calls. Oh. <laughs> like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> like, tell you what, let me just take all those leads. Right? Yeah, right. I'll pay you a referral fee on them or you know, something along those lines. But I, I mean, I see that all day long. You know, agents have no idea whether their marketing is working or not. I mean, I know that you could do this. I could guarantee I could go into any agent's marketing budget and slash it in half, if not completely, uh, within a short period of time if they would just, you know, listen. Oh, there's no doubt. And I know on your website, you offer some of those materials to do just that. See, that's just it. That's powerful information. And, you know, you go to the source. You are an experienced agent. You've been doing this for a long, long time. And instead of going to some squeeze page that where somebody in college threw this course together that really doesn't even understand our industry, that's why I, I encourage you to keep doing what you're doing because it, it provides value to the marketplace. And this is, this is the stuff that the agents really need to learn. Exactly. You know, the houses essentially sell themselves. It's not like we really sell houses. We just kind of sell information. We, we're, we're, we've evolved into a transactional um, type of job, you know. So you're doing the? Are you still doing these workshops and classes? We are. Yeah, we do them locally. And, and you only do them where, where you're in Tampa, Florida, right? I'm in Tampa, so I do them in two locations in the uh, the well, the, the Pinellas County and, and uh, Hillsborough County areas, which are two bordering counties. We do them over there for the general public, and then on demand, we we call it on demand. We do them once or twice a month for real estate agents. And usually it's brokers that will come to us and say, hey, come in and teach my agents. And we teach them all the aspects of, well, not all the aspects, but most of the of the aspects of real estate investing, how to speak with investors. Because if you really want a great ROI for your marketing efforts, attract some investors. I mean, they don't, they don't buy, they buy several houses a year, not just one house. You know, traditionally we're taught sphere of influence and, you know, you may sell Aunt Sally a house now, but how long is it going to be before Aunt Sally sells a house or buys another house? What is it, five to seven years, I think they say? Then you have to wait for her family and whatnot to buy a house or, or spread out from there. But I have clients that buy, in some cases, they're buying six, seven houses a week from me. Well, one thing that I have a tendency, I hear a lot from agents with investors. Well, investors aren't loyal, and you know they're going to buy from whoever gets them a deal, and um, they just waste my time. They want me to look at all the properties, and you know they don't want to to do anything. What what is your response to that? I mean, I'm sure you hear that plus a lot more, correct? Oh, absolutely. I first of all, we represent buy and hold investors, and that's the big line of of demarcation there that people have, that the agents have to understand is. Not that there's anything wrong with the rehabbers because they do buy a lot of property, but primarily our core customer, our bread and butter, is the buy and hold investor. They are looking within certain price points, certain neighborhoods, properties that will cash flow. In other words, they know that in a certain neighborhood, the properties in there, the two-bedroom, two-bath house, will rent for $1,000 a month. 
So it makes it very easy for us as far as picking, cherry picking the properties as they come on the market. We can, in a lot of cases, go in and pay full price for a property and sell it to one of our investor buyers. They make a handsome return on their money, and in a lot of cases, double-digit returns uh, on their money. And they control the asset. We just simply say, well, one, two, three, anywhere street, here we go. And they buy it, and we go on to the next one. Now, when you the, the complicated ones, obviously, where you're, what you talked about is more apparent is the rehabbers. Uh, market's hot. I'm sure it is in California. It's very hot here in yeah. Florida. And the rehabbers, you have a lot of inexperienced um, rehabbers, and that's where the lack of loyalty comes in. Now, we have rehabbers that, that uh, we work for in our team that are they're huge, and, and they're extremely loyal. They buy 100% of their inventory from us, but because we're able to source them, we took the time to sit down and figure out what their buying, buying criteria is. They know what they're doing. They know We know the type of property they're going to buy, and we're not sending them properties that don't fit that criteria. That's the big difference. Yeah, because I think what what happens many times is, you know, there's some infomercial playing at 2 a.m., right? And Or some, you know, workshop has come into town, and then you'll get all these calls from people who are have never bought investment property before. And so you're you're spending a ton of time trying to educate them that that infomercial is not necessary, you know. Like, I get the call a lot because I had a lot of REOs that, well, I see that you can buy HUD homes for a dollar. <laughs> I go, well, yeah, in Michigan, you, know, yeah. you, can, you can buy an entire block, yeah. you know, but, but not in California, right? right. Um, and do you, like, I know that here in California, it is tough to do buy and hold, I think, because of the prices. Am I just not being realistic? No, you're absolutely being realistic. In your market, it's very, very difficult to, to buy buy and hold. But then again, investors in California buy for a different reason. You're, you find more people that are investing for appreciation. So going back to that quadrant, the cash flow quadrant, uh, appreciation or the, the natural increase in value over based on market fluctuations, that's one of the elements that investors in California, that's the reason why they buy. Because I've, I've asked that very same question, why in the world are you buying in LA? Well, because I know in six months it's going to property's going to go up ten percent or twelve percent or whatever it is this week. Where in Florida we have a, a much lower rate of appreciation. It's a lot more realistic. I, I shouldn't say that because now it's not realistic, but a year or two ago it was. When you're investing for cash flow, it becomes a lot easier to have more control over what your return is over time. So you can buy. That's where everywhere else in the market, except for maybe California, Hawaii. Washington, D.C., and um, New York City, those aren't really cash flow type cities. You know, people there aren't buying for cash flow, but, you know, Memphis, Tennessee, you can get a duplex for $15,000. So that brings a, a question to me then. Is it one thing that always, uh, well, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you my own personal experience. So we had a piece of land here in California that we sold for a large amount of money, and we decided to do a 1031 exchange. And by uh, a triplex and uh, a duplex, I think, up in the Oregon area. And it seemed to make sense at the time until I went up to actually look at the properties. And they were just in horrible condition. They were a train wreck. We ended up losing money on that whole deal because I feel like I did. Now, having done a lot of REO, I know what stuff to look for. 
but I always get nervous, and I think a lot of other people do, about buying in an area that you don't know. So, for example, you mentioned, you know, Kentucky or wherever you said, Tennessee. buying Tennessee at a duplex for $15,000, which all sounds fantastic, but that would make me nervous. So tell me why I wouldn't be nervous, or should I be nervous in that situation? How would I, how would I know from California what to look for or how to keep from just throwing 15000 into a snake pit? Well, that's a great question. What everybody does, what the, the majority of investors do, newer experiences, they're the laser focused on the property or the asset. That is the most interchangeable part of, of any opportunity that comes in front. It doesn't really matter what the asset is. What matters is the team that you have behind you. We know this in real estate as practitioners. We have to have a team. We've got our title people, our lenders, this, that, and the other. By default, we build our little teams as, as agents and as brokers. But the general buying public doesn't use that same exercise. They don't go through that same exercise. They don't understand or see the value in a team. Now, for me, I come from that mentality, so I knew that I needed to build a rock star team in other markets if I plan on investing there. And that starts with property management. Now, I own 22 doors, 22 uh, properties, or 22 doors in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and I'm on the pro in the process of acquiring probably this year I'll acquire a little over 100 more alone but I have an outstanding rock star team in Memphis and when properties come on the market I know about it before the inks even dry on the listing agreements so I know that they've already vetted those properties for me I trust my team I've worked with them for a while we've built that rapport they understand my buying criteria because I then take the role of the buyer having that team in place to make sure that you have those protections in place. That's what made. That's the secret sauce. Is the team. It all comes down to the team. So you're looking to that agent or that team to give you good advice, obviously, right, and tell you what makes sense or what doesn't make sense. Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, when dealing, and I, I just actually said this on an episode I did this week for our show. Uh, when you're working with a real estate agent buying investment property, find one that has or ha that currently has investment property. I think that's a critical point and have the discussion with them is what do, what do you own and why do you own it? I have that conversation with a other when I deal with another agent in another state when I'm buying property is I want to know the answers to those questions. What do you own? And they're a little reluctant to tell you, but that's an important question. What do you own or control and why did you choose those those investments? I try to find a match an agent with my buying criteria and then it creates a win-win solution. How do you, I guess that goes to buying criteria, how do you determine where in the country it may make sense? But again, I, I guess I want to accentuate the key component here that you are primarily looking to buy and hold, not necessarily looking for appreciation, which is a big difference, right? Because in, in my opinion, a lot of people who all bought for appreciation here in California lost their butts. I mean, perfect example was people would go and they'd buy a, a, a home in a new home subdivision, which by the time the doors were opened, it was already worth, you know, 30% more. Right. Well, then when the market crashed, a lot of those people obviously lost a lot of money, 50, up to 50% some. Wow. Yeah. So how do you figure out where in the country you want to buy? You know, I got to say one of the, and I know neither one of us re represent this brokerage, but Marcus and Milchamp, Oh, yeah. They have an incredible website, and they spend a lot of time and a lot of money doing market research. 
add to that Sperling's Best Places. That's another website. Sperling'sBestPlaces.net is another website that I use to analyze markets. And what I'm looking for is emerging markets. I'm looking at the stats, trying to figure out, because those websites will tell you, is construction up? Is construction down? What are the, what's the unemployment rate? What's the average median income in that community? What percentage of, of, of properties are occupied with tenants versus homeowners? Now, Memphis is a good example of a market. Over 60% of the Memphis market is comprised of renters. The people there, are the, you know, statistically, the, the average person is not going to buy a home in Memphis. They're going to rent one. Why is that? Is that because of income? Or? It's because of the, a lot of it has to do with the infrastructure in the city, the job market. There's a lot of jobs there. However, they're the type of companies that tend to relocate their staff on a regular basis, uh, FedEx being one of them. That's FedEx headquarters. It's in oh, Memphis, yeah. Tennessee. Uh, several other large worldwide employers, they move their employees around a lot, so it's more of a transient. I mean, granted, there's obviously some roots there, but there is a, a large transient population. That transient population is not going to buy by the stats, by by the demographics, they're going to rent. So you have knowing the market, taking the time to do the research on a market is absolutely critical to market selection and where you where you're going to purchase. Well, I know right here in California, at least I'm in the Northern California, Sacramento area, and rentals are so impossible to come by. Like one of my friends who was looking for a rental had to, she paid um, $200 more for rent than the other people. It was like became a bidding war. And she paid a full year's rent in advance. Wow. Because there's no rentals available. There's no inventory right now. So rentals are really difficult to find. Like in the city in San Francisco, oh, my gosh, you could pay like, you know, 10000 a month for like a studio. So <laughs> I'm probably exaggerating a little bit. That brings a question for you is, and that's one thing I'd want to know before I invest in that market is why is it that way? I want to get to the why. Just like when we're listing a house, Mr. Seller, why are you selling your house? That's the most important question a listing agent can ask. Why are you selling? Same thing, why is there a shortage of rental property in that area? What is causing that? And if you can discover that, that's going to tell you how or if to buy in that market. Oh, that's good to know. That's good to know. So when you're doing your research, like how did you learn all that? Is this stuff you've just learned from experience? Is it stuff that you teach in your, in your workshops? How did you figure out exactly where is a key component? Because I guess I always think everyone says, do you know what's going to happen to the market? And I said, if I did, I'd be in Tahiti sipping my ties. Like, exactly. <laughs> well, my workshops have, I think I learn more from my own workshops than the people that come because I learn, I've always been a student of other people. I find people that, you know, people ask a lot of questions and I love it when people ask questions because more often than not, I don't always have the answers. And in, <laughs> lately it's, as we get more popular, especially the show gets more popular, I get a lot of questions that I don't necessarily have the answer to, but it forces me to go out there and find the answers. So when I have the question, I don't really go out and Google it so much. I get on the phone and I, and I develop a relationship with the people that have the answers. And just like Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad teaches, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room, but you need to surround yourself with the smartest people in the room. Yeah. And that's the key. That is so true. In this equation, so in my company and cash flow guys, I am certainly not the smartest guy in the room. But I do have the best tax, legal, and, and property management teams and acquisition people in the business, in my opinion. So that's been a huge part of my success. So if a real estate agent really did want to make some huge changes in their life and, and learn how to do this, what would be the best way for them to start? First thing they need to do is learn how to leverage their time appropriately because this is not a get-rich-quick 
you are not going to be an overnight success. You have to be able to carve out some time for education. Now, there are all kinds of educational products out there, but some of the best ones are on Amazon.com for under 10 bucks. starting with Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which you will know, great book to get the mindset, because at the end of the day, investing really comes down to mindset. Yeah, it makes me want to go home and find my book and read it again. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't read it in a bit. <laughs> I, the first time I, I read it, I probably had it 12, 15 years ago, I think when it was first released. I think that's about the time I got it, too, because I bought all of his books. I, I, I bought all of them and read them all. Yeah, well, I bought them all and put them on the shelf. I think I got through Chapter 1, and at the time, I just wasn't ready to receive the information. My brain wasn't ready for it. Yeah. You know, fast forward 15 years later, I become a, a pretty much an apostle of Kiyosaki. I do exactly what he says, and it's worked incredibly. It's, I mean, it blew me away. 2020 hindsight, don't you wish you'd have started a little earlier? Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, that's great. there's a great cartoon that shows um, a real estate agent saying, Dear God, please just give me one more boom so I won't piss it all away. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is now that I have the passive income from the notes from my, the real estate transactions that I've sold, I've got a little over 100,000 in notes out there right now that are paying in. Uh, which is a beautiful thing uh, over the years that those, that monies have been, have been trickling out for years and years and years now. Adding to that, I have the properties cash flowing. So now I get to go out when I'm selling real estate. It makes me a better agent because I don't have commission breath anymore. Exactly. Now I focus on the service and I can blow the clients out of the water with the service. So what are your thoughts when you mention notes? So a big thing that was going on for a while, I haven't seen as much of it lately, was about buying notes, buying performing and non-performing notes as opposed to buying actual properties. Is that something you do too, or is that some, or is it just notes that you've done on kind of your own deals? It is. I have two partners. Ironically, they're in Southern California, and what they what we've done is they one guy has developed. He's an engineer, a software engineer, and he's developed a proprietary software system to go out and analyze large tapes of notes, which you know, being a real broker, yep, that we can look at the tapes. And it automatically breaks down the properties. It uses auto, automated valuation models um, and zip code cross-references and whatnot to... Which are getting better and better. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And we look at those, and, and now we can buy in larger bulk. So we raise capital to go in and buy large volumes of non-performing notes. And we can provide the investors a an amazing return and... Depending on the exit strategy, whether we do a, a, allow a short sale or, or we restructure the loan, do a cash for keys, there's all kinds of different exit strategies, as you well know. That's become a highly, highly profitable adventure for us, and we're getting, i got to say, we're getting pretty good at it. Yeah, we um, went to a workshop a, a couple of years ago and ended up, uh, my husband and I, and we bought a, a couple notes, and he still says, he, my husband laughs, there was one that we were kind of deciding, he goes, well, you pick one and I'll pick one. And I said, okay. So he picked this one and I said, don't buy it. It's, you know, bad news. It's not, I don't think it's good. It was in, where was it? It was in like Pennsylvania somewhere. So I don't remember. And he decided that he, he thought it was a good deal. So he was going to buy it anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and my husband is a real estate broker, but he's been in the mortgage side. He's never really, um, we call him the eye candy on the real estate side. But, um, 
And so he decided to buy that one. And then, but I bought a different one. I bought one in Ohio or something like that. Well, mine has been, mine ended up becoming a performing note. These guys pay all, every month on time. And it's ended up being like a great little deal. You know, we, we get those little passive checks, like you said, in the mail. I always, and it gets automatically deposited in my account. So I'm so excited when I look at my account and that money's there. And his ended up and we lost the whole thing. They ended up in bankruptcy. It was a bad situation. So now he says he's not going to make any decisions on those. But I love the note side of it and would like to do more of that because it's just you don't have to deal with all the rental stuff. It's a little simpler for me, I think. I do, but my struggle with notes is that eventually they get paid off. Yeah. So you got to keep feeding the beast. And, you know, as I get older uh, and as my passive income builds, I want to do less and less and less. And less. So I, yeah. I still stick with the real estate because it's a gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Well, Tyler, as we wrap up today, what are some final thoughts that you would love to give us? Like, And, and how can people get a hold of you or find out more information about what you do? best way to reach out to us is through the website at cashflowguys.com. And, uh, of course, our phone number and, and social media information is there. We're all over Facebook and Twitter and everything else that I don't know how to use, but my, uh, my, team, <laughs> my team does. <laughs> but uh, that's the best way to reach out to us. And I guess my parting thought would be is to take a take a little bit of risk and, and take some time to educate yourself and think outside the box because the real estate business is not as hard as we tend to make it. Exactly. It can be extremely profitable if you take the time to educate yourself and there is no get rich quick in this business so stop looking for it. Well, I keep looking for that easy button, the same one that will help me get skinny and Yeah, they, and, they sell those and, at Staples and, but you have to keep putting <laughs> batteries in them. <laughs> Well, Tyler, thank you very much for being on our show today. You are fantastic, and I look forward to, to chatting with you more in the future. Thanks for having me. So thank you. So thank you, everybody, for joining us today on Real Estate Real World, where we talk with masters in the real estate industry and leadership on how we can raise the bar on our industry. Please subscribe over on iTunes, and while you're there, be sure to give us a review. Your reviews encourage us and help others find our podcast. Want to keep up with the latest stuff? Pop on over to realestaterealworld.com and add your name to our email list. Thank you again for listening and go out there and help us raise the bar. We will be sure to have great information and links to Tyler's site on our website. So I look forward to seeing you over there. Thanks again, Tyler. Thank you, everybody. Go out and make it a great day. Thank you for joining us today on Real Estate Real World where we talk with masters and leaders in real estate and beyond on how we can raise the bar in our industry. Please subscribe over on iTunes. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. Your reviews encourage us and help others find our podcast. For show notes and hot topics on what's going on right now in our real estate industry, pop on over to www.realestaterealworld.com and add your name to our email. Thanks again for listening and go out there, be a part of the elite masterclass in raising the bar on the real estate industry.